Hello, my name is Cameron Smith, and welcome to the first episode of Eurofocus Weekly, a podcast discussing all things European football, the weekend's results, all of the top headlines, and all of the main talking points from across Europe's big leagues. And there is no better time to start following on from a fantastic weekend of FA Cup football. So we begin in Manchester, where Pep Guardiola's Manchester City faced Arsenal on Friday evening. The tabletoppers rotated their side away at the Etihad, while City were mostly full strength, apart from the inclusion of Stefan Ortega in goal. Over the course of the 90 minutes, it was a fairly even match. Trossard started bright in his first start in red. However, in the second half, some excellent play from Jack Grealish set up Nathan Ake for what I thought personally was a fantastic finish, considering it was his weak foot. Um, probably one of the main talking points from the game was the injury to Thomas Partey. And obviously, in the last few days, I'm sure many of you have seen the rumours about Moises Caicedo from Brighton. And it has been reported that Mikel Arteta would sort of like to bring him another two midfield players before the end of the window. Whether or not this result does carry any sort of um, weight in terms of league form is going to be a different story. However, over the course of the game, I did think Arsenal were impressive, despite the fact that, as I say, they were heavily rotated. Obviously, we saw... Fabio Vieira coming to the lineup. Leandro Trossard played brilliantly on his first start. But I think this result is bigger for Manchester City in terms of the fact that it will give them the confidence going into the second half of the season now, especially after a big win last week at home against Wolves, a 3 0 win. Um, Erling Haaland scoring a hat trick, obviously, but it's about confidence for, for Guardiola's side now, especially after the uh, fiery interview which he did deliver a couple of weeks ago, following on from, strangely, their win at home against Spurs. Elsewhere in the FA Cup, we saw uh, Leeds were impressive on the road away at Accrington Stanley. The problem is with the FA Cup, or all competi- cup competitions really, is that these ties are always a potential banana skin. And I thought Leeds were very, very, very impressive on the day. Obviously, a Jack Harrison screamer early on in the first half set the tone for the rest of the fixture, really. I thought Giorgino Ruta was remarkable on his debut. I thought he led the line brilliantly alongside Patrick Bamford. Unlucky not to find the net with his shot that hit the side netting in the second half, but overall I thought Leeds were fantastic. And yet again, for those, it is a result that is about confidence. Obviously, we've seen uh, in the last, I, think it's about, I don't know if they've announced it yet, but the signing of Weston McKenney from Juventus is a massive signing for Jesse Marsh's side. But I think overall, I think they were very impressive. Obviously, we saw Patrick Bamford's remarkable assist for the second goal of the match, which saw Junior Firpo find the bottom corner of the net. But overall, I thought Leeds were fantastic. I thought they played with high energy. I thought Accrington Stanley put on a, a very good showing. Obviously, as I say, it, it's always a potential banana skin when you travel to a lower league side in the Cup. As Leicester almost found out at Warsaw, I thought, you know, Warsaw were very impressive over the course of the game and should find themselves unlucky. And that was said when coach Michael Flynn spoke after the 90 minutes. He was proud of his side. But the only major disappointment, I suppose, for him and fans would be the fact that Warsaw didn't take the chances when they when they did arise. Obviously, we saw Leicester go through to the fifth round after a Kelechi Iheanacho deflected goal. But I think Leicester were poor, and I think it's in, it's very indicative of their season. To be honest, they've re, they've lacked real confidence in the final third. They've looked really shaky at times, especially from set pieces for the last two seasons. But they didn't look they didn't look assertive at all away at the best got on Saturday afternoon and I, I see why Leicester fans are so concerned um, I, obviously I understand why Rodgers wants the fans to back him because obviously he's, he's earned time at the club however there, there was a, 
extreme lack of confidence from a Leicester side which had been so known to have confidence flowing through the ranks. It was it's shocking me to see the season that they're having. Hopefully they can build on a, on a sort of cup run from this. Obviously, we've seen them reach the Carabao Cup quarterfinals, obviously, in which they lost to Newcastle. But for a club in Leicester's position now where they're sort of flowing towards a relegation battle, it's it's about trying to build confidence in these results to help them towards the back end of the season. We've just seen them announce the signing of Brazilian winger Tete from Olympic Lyonnais. I think this, as well as the... Was it last week they signed uh, Christensen, the uh, young Danish fullback? I think that they're making moves. However, the issue is it's how soon Rodgers can bed these signings into the starting eleven and get them performing in a Leicester team that has been underperforming since the season's opening months. And I think Rodgers has got a huge job on his hands in turning their season around and making sure that his side don't drift into that relegation battle with the likes of Wolves, Southampton, etc. Elsewhere throughout the Premier League sides, we also saw comfortable dispatchings of Preston by Tottenham, which I think, yet again, it was another game where you're looking for players to regain form, especially after Tottenham's poor run of form recently. I know they beat Fulham on Monday evening, but especially for Son Heung-min, who he took his first goal in typical Son fashion. It was a fantastic, fantastic strike from distance. His second goal... Yeah, again, another typical Son goal. But I think for him, he's had a remarkably poor season by his standards. And it's quite unbelievable when you, even at the World Cup, he wasn't at his best, really, despite South Korea's ex- exploits in Qatar. However, we saw Arnaud Danjuma register himself a debut goal towards the end of the, towards the end of the fixture. And yet again, another comfortable win for a Premier League side. To be expected, of course, but as I say, under the lights, these fixtures can always be a banana skin, especially when you know your league form hasn't been in the best either. However, Preston are obviously a mid-table championship side, not being the best of form themselves, struggling to score goals, a lot of nil-nils and a lot of draws this season. However, elsewhere we saw Manchester United dispatch of Reading with their Brazilian midfield, Casemiro and Fred. Casemiro himself registering two and Fred registering one. Another comfortable win for a Premier League side. I think Anthony himself, I'd like to touch on Anthony actually. I think he was remarkable in this game. I think he was fantastic. Uh, I think probably the best, I know it was against Reading, but probably the best overall performance I've seen of him in a United shirt. I don't don't buy into the notion of Anthony being a flop, so to speak, because I don't think you can judge a player after having five months at a new club. However, I think his player profile has everything that you would want from a Premier League winger. It's just about him adapting to the system under Eric Ten Hag. And I think he's, especially in the earlier months, he, he he operated a lot better when Diogo Dallo was on that right-hand side with him. And he was able to build the link-up play down the right-hand side where we had the overlapping runs, whereas Aaron Wambisaka doesn't seem to make. Obviously, they're very different players, Dallo and Wambisaka, but Wambisaka as a footballer doesn't make the same forward runs that you see Diogo Dallo make in terms of overlapping, in terms of his movement in the final third, which I think restricts Anthony's ability. Was When you watch him at Ajax, Anthony's a footballer who likes to drift inside. He likes to have that space available on his left foot, which obviously seen with some of his wonder goals that he scored, obviously for Ajax and even for United this season. That comes when that space is readily available for him. And I think it's it's only a matter of time with him under Eric Ten Hag where the quality will start to come. The goals and assists will start to become more regular for Anthony and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how he does 
Uh, elsewhere in the Premier League, we've saw Fulham will face a replay away at the Stadium of Light after, well, arguably a poor performance against Sunderland, really. And I'm, I'm actually quite shocked at their recent form, to be honest. Obviously, they lost to Tottenham in midweek, uh, and now this against Fulham, against Sunderland, sorry. I thought Ahmad Diallo, he's been fantastic for the Black Cats this season. I think what a, what a loan signing that is, securing his signature. Uh, how, where his future lies in terms of Manchester United, only time will tell. But I think he's certainly earning himself a chance of progression in at Old Trafford, especially with how he's been playing at Sunderland. He didn't really cut it at Rangers last year. However, if you if you've watched Ahmad Diallo this season, you will know the, the, the sheer quality in which he has when played to his strengths and the quality he can reach as a footballer. Uh, Sunderland did have a late goal disallowed where Diallo did find himself, well, he was miles offside, it can't be It can't be disputed. But a home replay against the Premier League side, Sunderland doing well themselves in the Championship, in and around the playoff race, it's themselves are having a good season. Uh, their northeast rivals as well, Middlesbrough. I'd like to touch on Michael Carrick further in the future, uh, but the job that he's doing in the northeast has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, he took over the side when he was 21st, and it has all the... All the makings of a similar season as to what Steve Cooper did under Nottingham Forest last year. You know, they've moved up to third and some of the football they're playing after a 2-0 win at home to Watford on Saturday. And they've been fantastic. Some of the football they've been playing. Uh, they, they're actually one of the best sides. I know they, they, they did get dispatched 3-0 in the end against Brighton. But their performance against Brighton was one of the most tactically aware performances I've seen from an opposition manager against Brighton under Roberto De Zerbe. I thought they didn't deserve to, to lose in the way that they did. And it was the added quality in which Brighton's midfield possesses, etc., which did eventually lead in Middlesbrough losing that fixture. However, as I say, I'd like to do an article myself on Carrick in, in the future and sort of look more into that team because I think they've been fantastic and I think he deserves a lot and a lot of credit. Uh, on Sunday, we saw Brighton face Liverpool for the second time in a matter of weeks. And... Wow, I think it's time that Roberto De Zerbi, he deserves so much credit for what he's doing with this Brighton side. I think Liverpool were poor yet again. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of question marks about them this season. And, and obviously, it can't be argued with injuries to Jota, Diaz, etc. But they were remarkably poor yet again. However, I was actually fascinated in the in the opening, the opening minutes um, as to the approach. It's it's the first time I've seen somebody really try and man-mark Brighton's midfield. If you watch Brighton, you, you know that the midfield of either Gross, McAllister or Caicedo, they like to play through the midfield lines. However, we were having to see Pascal Gross drop extremely deep to come pick up the ball because of how close Thiago, uh, Bajetic and, and Naby Keita was the other midfielder, sorry, uh, how close they were getting to McAllister and Gross. And it was intriguing to see how close they were following the Brighton midfield. And it's rare to see a Liverpool team do that, especially away at Brighton, where it seems that Klopp attempted to learn his lessons from previous weeks where he was guilty of trying to outplay Brighton, where I think, as I say, it's not a surprise anymore when Brighton achieve these results because they are a fantastic side. Um, they progress the ball so well. They keep the ball so well. It's no surprise anymore. And especially when... Karo Mitoma is in the form that he's in. And we've got to talk about Mitoma. What a player. What a finish towards the end. But overall had yet again another fantastic game. I think that Mitoma had 
Trent Alexander-Arnold pinned back all game. I think he was fantastic yet again. Uh, the form that he's been in recently has been, as I say, fantastic overall. But I think, as previously mentioned, that there is no in, there's no surprise with Brighton anymore. We we know the quality they possess throughout the ranks, as well as their tactical quality and the astuteness of their manager. You know, we're having to see a Liverpool side change to play against Brighton. We're having to see a different style of play from sides when they face Brighton now because that there's always the saying there are no mugs in the Premier League, but with Brighton they are fully asserting themselves, which after the Graham Potter left, I don't think anyone could have imagined. However, Roberto De Zerbi has come in and all credit to him, he's come in, asserted his style of play with his players, and he's you know, and he's took this team to a whole, whole, whole new level. In the introduction of Mitoma, Solly March has been in fantastic form. Yet again, he was brilliant on uh, on Sunday afternoon. Tarek Lamptey, who hasn't really been in the best of form uh, since the departure of Potter, he's been uh, rumoured to be uh, to be off to sport in Lisbon for the last couple of weeks throughout the window, I believe. Uh, that that deal was uh, was denied because of uh, the fact that Brighton would only be willing to let him go permanently rather than on, rather than on loan. So um, yeah, as I say, I just think Brighton are fantastic and they're an absolute pleasure to watch at the minute, and I'm intrigued just to see just how far uh, Roberto De Zerbi can take this side. I'll touch on uh, the Caicedo rumours later. Obviously, we uh, heard about the departure of Leandro Trossard recently. Uh, and Caicedo has been in the news uh, a lot recently. I'll discuss that later when we discuss uh, all of the transfers. But that is English football roundup, people. So we move on to German football. And in the German Bundesliga this weekend, there was yet again another fascinating weekend of results. Obviously, on Friday night, we saw total challengers uh, RB Leipzig get another win against Schalke. And then on Saturday, it was arguably the most important match of the weekend, where Bayern dropped points in a 1-1 draw at home to Eintracht Frankfurt. To be expected, obviously, we know the quality of Eintracht Frankfurt, and the, it's to be expected for them to be flying so high. But there's something different about Bayern Munich this second half of the season. In Whereas in past seasons, Bayern have been known to pull something out of the bag it has always been the case however obviously in their first three games they've they've dropped points against Leipzig and Frankfurt two fellow title contenders and I thought Frankfurt yet again were fantastic you know Oliver Glasner's got a fantastic setup there obviously they won the Europa League last season they're no mugs at the end of the day however I'd like to touch on the centre forward Randall Kola Marani who he took his equaliser beautifully and he is well on the way to becoming one of the most exciting attacking talents in Europe. You know, he's the top assister in Germany with 10 assists alongside his seventh goal of the season, which come against Bayern on Saturday in the second half. But he's got a lot of the traits that you want in your modern centre forward. He's, he's, got a, he's got pace, he's got energy, he's got fantastic quality on the ball in terms of creativity and he's got a very good eye for goal as well. He had a fantastic World Cup for France. He's got a brilliant assist in the final. And I see a lot of clubs across Europe looking at the at the, the, the French forward as the summer window approaches. Whether or not he will stay at Eintracht Frankfurt is another story. However, as I say, I'd, I'd like to touch on him just for the fact that I think he's well on his way to becoming a well, a top-class footballer. I feel this game in general is, is what really has blown the title race open. Obviously, we saw Freiburg, Union Berlin and Leipzig all, were, all winning. Dortmund later threw themselves into the mix after a 2-0 win away at Leverkusen. 
and there is now three points separating Bayern Munich in first and Borussia Dortmund in fifth. Uh, I, I just think, as I say, there's a different feel about this season's title race. I think in previous years we've seen, you know, for example, Borussia Dortmund or RB Leipzig have, have challenged in the first half of the season and, and it's they've later failed to keep pace in the second half and Bayern have always seemed to pull something out of the bag. However, Bayern under, under Nagelsmann this season, there's, there's a distinct lack of confidence, really. I think Sane has been excellent. I think he's been their best player this season by a long, long while, a lot, as well as Jamal Musiala, who I don't think anyone can have a bad word to say about. I think he was one of his more quiet games against Frankfurt, but he's still his quality is so evident with every touch of the ball. Uh, you can there's, there's a definite miss for Lewandowski. Chupamoting has scored. He's been reliable when when he's been called upon, but there is a massive miss of Lewandowski this season. Mane hasn't really hit the heights imagined uh, in Germany yet. Obviously, he's going through a, a period on the sidelines due to injury at the moment, but whether he can build up his form as he does come back is a, is a massive question as to how the second half of this season goes. Because, as I say, if, if it, it's about if all the other sides can keep on keeping pace with Bayern, which they look as of now as if they can. You know, Borussia Dortmund under Edin Terzic have been brilliant in front of goal. Arguably, were well awful defensively at times. However, they're always, you know, reliable to score goals as well as Eintracht Frankfurt, who, as always, a fantastic side and one of Europe's Europe's best underdog stories, I must admit. And then, obviously, the likes of Union Berlin and Freiburg, who have been fantastic this season, I must admit. Union having a a 2-0 victory against their local rivals, Hertha Berlin, in the Berlin derby. I think, yeah, again, a brilliant game. Uh, I think their side this season, it, it fascinates me as to the fact they can keep pace along with Freiburg. Obviously, Freiburg were cup finalists last year with their eventual loss to Leipzig. But Union Berlin, I think the quality they possess in their side is nowhere near the likes of the teams around them. And the fact they can keep on performing at this level... It, it just feels like a matter of time before they drop off and I feel like they will be the most likely to drop out of the title race. However, all credit to them. I think it would be fantastic to see a, multi, a multi-team title race in Bundesliga for what would be the first time in a long while since really Borussia Dortmund won the league last in 2012. So yeah, it's fascinating. Elsewhere, in terms of the rest of the league, we have seen the relegation race become a very interesting topic. Schalke have been extremely poor since their promotion, you know, for such a huge club to be suffering the way they are. They're seven points away from VfL Borkum with Hertha Berlin only being two points. That, But it's for two humongous giants of German football, Schalke especially, you know, recent Champions League contestants in, I can't remember the last year they contested it, but it's probably only five or six years ago. You know, they're one of Europe's biggest clubs, one of Germany's biggest clubs. And for them to be facing another relegation it's shocking as for Hertha Berlin they narrowly missed out last year uh, I can see them I can see them escaping because I don't because Borkham haven't been the best this season I feel they've been quite fortunate for, with some of their results but Schalke have been extremely extremely poor uh, I, I can't see them mustering themselves out of the race I must admit and as I say for, for one of Europe's bigger clubs in, in Schalke it's They've become something of a laughing stock in Germany of recent times, especially under their poor form a few years ago under David Wagner. 
who now finds himself managing Norwich City. And for Europe, for one of Europe's biggest clubs, it's it's a huge shame, and it's for what seems almost an inevitability that they will go down this season. Uh, elsewhere in Bundesliga, obviously we saw Niko Kovac's Wolfsburg uh, perform admirably this season. Uh, but I think apart away from that sort of top five, the, the Bundesliga itself has been quite poor this season. I think even teams in the top five have been not at their best, as I said before. Dortmund's a horrible defensive record. Even Bayern Munich themselves have not been poor and have, have been poor, sorry. And whether or not that Bayern's poor record has anything to do with the likes of Freiburg, Union Berlin and Leipzig all keeping pace, uh, only time will tell. Because, as I say, there's always an inevitability about Bayern that they will pull something out of the bag. However, that just doesn't feel that that doesn't feel that this season, and I'm really intrigued to see the direction in which the second half of this season takes. And now we move on to Italy. So the Italian Serie A this season has been one of the standouts of European football, I must admit. And there's there's no better place to start than Napoli, really. You know, from what I believe to be the best team in Europe this season alongside Arsenal, arguably even better than the Gunners. Last night against Roma, they were fantastic yet again from start to finish. Victor Rosimen is fastly becoming one of Europe's most sought-after centre-forwards. I would not be surprised to see a handful of Premier League clubs in for the signature of the Nigerian this summer. I thought he was fantastic again. A fantastic opening goal. And, and Roma were... Rome will put in a valiant effort for a side that has a lot of controversy surrounding them at the minute. Obviously, with the futures of Chris Morlin and Nicola Zaniolo surrounding. And then there's been talk of over-reliance on Paolo Dybala with Tammy Abraham only recently coming into form. However, they were brilliant last night and I thought Rome were put in a valiant effort in their sort of quest for top four. But Napoli, there's not much more that can be said about Spalletti's Napoli this season. They're, they're one of... I did an article a few months ago uh, lauding the work of Spalletti. I think the system they play, and, and it, it's all, when you put it in context, when you, obviously a lot of media sources have highlighted, you know, that, that club had their spine of the squad ripped apart throughout the summer, and they've been an absolute revelation this season. Obviously we all know Spalletti is a, is a top coach throughout his history in Italy, but he has worked wonders with that side. With that side. Obviously that, the inclusion of Kavita Kavaraskalia. Uh, I think, as I say, Ozzyman's been fantastic. The signing of Kim Min-Jay at centre-half, yet again, another fantastic, but a smart addition. After selling, you know, Dries Mertens, uh, Lorenzo Insigne, Caladukula Bali, three players that have been at Napoli since Maurizio Sarri's tenure there, and Ottman Insigne and uh, Mertens even longer. And to lose those three you know, your three most experienced heads and replace them with not just young players, but players who have character, players who have some, the, uh, I don't know how to say it, but the metal to play for Napoli because there's a, there's a different sort of, uh, a different, a different sort of metal needed to play in Naples. Napoli fans will tell you that themselves. And it's looking, now being 13 points clear, it's, it's almost an inevitability that they will win their first Scudetto since Maradona. And, what a better way to do it, as I say, that the introduction of, of brilliant youngsters, fantastic style of play, 
and just an overall joy to watch, especially as we've seen in the Champions League as well. You know, and, and whether their Champions League exploits can continue this season, you know, we'll find out in the latter months. But as I say, they've been absolutely fantastic. And it, it cannot take away from the rest of the league because below Napoli, I did an article last week about the excellent race for top four in Italy. And it's been blown even further wide wide open this weekend. You know, we've saw obviously we've seen Juventus's uh, points deduction last week after their financial irregularities. But this this weekend alone, we saw obviously Inter Milan and Atalanta both secure wins. Uh, Atalanta fantastic against Sampdoria, uh, not at their goal scoring best as they have been in recent weeks. But yet again, Adamola Lukman was fantastic in in the two goal win. But that has took them into third place as well as Inter into second. However, the, the most important result of the weekend was in Milan, where, well, champions AC Milan yet again suffered an embarrassing result, this time 5-2 at home to Sassuolo, 17th placed Sassuolo, I must add, who have been extremely poor this season, obviously losing Scamacca in the summer. But Sassuolo were fantastic and you could not tell that Milan were champions. They were, They looked frail defensively. There was a a lack of real sort of energy and drive in the final third. They're very heavily reliant on balls into Olivier Giroud. And they, I just can't get, I couldn't get over watching the defensive performance. And I've seen uh, a lot of Milan fans come out and say that the, the loss of a uh, goalkeeper, Magnon, has been a, obviously a big factor, which, which of course, Tatarasano is, is levels behind the level of Magnon. But this cannot be to blame. When you look at the quality Milan have in the back four, the performances they've been putting in are unacceptable. And this has all stemmed from, if you remember a few weeks ago, when they were two goals up at home to Roma and they let the two-goal lead slip since then. You know, they got embarrassed in the Super Cup by Inter. They then lost 4-0 in midweek to Lazio. You know, two top four rivals and your annual City rivals as well. But to lose 5-2 to Sassuolo is, in, is embarrassing. And obviously that has seen Milan slip outside of the top four for the first time since... I think it's got to be last season when they won the league. Probably even before that, to be honest. You know, and it's, you know, what what an awful way to defend your title. Whether the future of Pioli will be questioned, I don't know. But Milan are known to be cutthroat with managers in the past, especially recent, in recent times when results don't come. And especially in this, in, in this way, they've been embarrassing in recent weeks. And I don't want to sound like I'm being too harsh on a side that have been, that are the current champions of Italy. However, defensively, they don't look anything. For a side known to be so organised and so brilliant defensively, they've been a shadow of what we know. And then further on into Serie A, we've seen Lazio drop points against Fiorentina. Yet again, not the worst result uh, for Lazio, for Sarri's side. However, as I say, it's not ideal, but they would have liked to have capitalised on their rivals Roma and Milan, both dropping points this weekend. But there are still, as we go looking, there's still plenty of games left and still plenty of twists and turns left in this race. And I wouldn't be surprised to see sides swap around and jump up and down as the season goes on. I wouldn't be surprised to see AC Milan turn turn their run of form around. As we saw earlier in the season, it's Serie A is a very easy league to to lose to gain and lose form in. We've seen Inter go through stages this season where they've been a shadow of the side that they were last season under Inzaghi. Uh, 
whereas recently they seem to be looking a great upturn of form. As mentioned in my article last week, I'd recommend reading that for anyone who hasn't. Uh, just outlined in a short overview on all of the teams involved in the race for Serie A's top four. But it, it's, I think Atalanta at the moment are looking, I wouldn't say favourites, because as I say, there are plenty of twists and turns left. But in terms of the form they're in, as I say, that they've always been known to score goals under under Jasperini. Uh, I think you know, himself is a fantastic manager and they've always had great attacking talent. But this season, they've they've eradicated the one issue that's plagued their game uh, in recent years, and that has been their defensive frailties. They've always been known to win games 6-3 or 5-2 and been known to score goals, but also conceding them. However, as we've seen in recent weeks, their demolition of Salernitana the other week and then the other night against Sampdoria. Sampdoria resolute, better than they have been. And for a side, eight points from safety with the goals conceded record, which they have, they did defend very well against Atalanta, but relegation's death is becoming an almost a certainty for Sampdoria this season. I think I've watched them a couple of times this season. They have been toothless at one end. And obviously, they brought in Harry Winks over the summer, They've got other quality players throughout the ranks. Thomas Rincon, ex-Juventus player. And well, some, some great Serie A experienced heads, which have been there for some years. And Harry Winks has been injured half of the season. He's only recently come in, coming to the side. I thought he was poor Saturday night against Atalanta. He didn't really bring anything into the midfield, really. He's not too bad defensively. But I think it just shows Harry Winks as a footballer, really. He's always been... a. Even at Tottenham, he was an average footballer. He's He's got okay technical ability. He's okay in the final third and he's okay defensively. Uh, I think this is his level uh, in, in low, probably lower end of the league. But I don't think, I, I can't see him being the type of player that is going to bring something, especially when you're eight points behind to a side like Sampdoria. And whether they get an instant return, because it's always a difficult factor in, in Italy. Obviously, the financial situation in Italian football is never, never at its best, really. However, it, instant return in Italy is is probably more difficult than it than it is throughout the rest of Europe. And I will be intrigued to watch them next season and see whether they can turn it around. But as I say, when you look at Italy this season, you look at uh, Serie A, you you cannot take your eyes off this top four race. Um, we have some fantastic Coppa Italia football coming in in the quarterfinals this week. Juventus face Lazio on Thursday evening, I believe, as well as Atalanta Inter. And I will have to take a look at the rest of the other fixtures, but I know that that is something I'm really looking forward to. And keep your eye on Eurofocus for Juventus Lazio this Thursday. So we move on to Spain. Uh, not much to talk about in Spain this weekend, really. However, the top of the table, I have to say, Real Madrid are looking extremely poor. We saw Barcelona go five points clear, a 1-0 one, one win away at Girona and a Real Madrid uh, draw 0-0 at home against Real Sociedad, who themselves do find themselves in third place. However, Madrid have been poor in recent weeks. Uh, obviously, they lost to Villarreal a few weeks ago, followed by their subsequent battering in Riyadh against Barcelona. They haven't... They, obviously, as Champions League winners, you expect a lot more. But Barcelona themselves haven't been all that impressive all season. I think they're massively improved under Xavi yet again. But I don't think they have the quality to be competing with Real Madrid. 
I think Real Madrid should be levels above where they are at the moment. I think they're, against Barcelona they were awful. They've been accused of lacking drive, energy and any real bite for a side that have so much quality and so much energy. Especially when, when it, it was seen in the Champions League last season that with their exploits of winning it, how energy and was the main thing that won Madrid, you know, the competition. I think going forward, they haven't been that bad. You know, it's, you can't blame Vinicius and Benzema, etc. for Madrid's loss of form. It's more of a team-wide effort in the fact that there's... I watched them against Barcelona recently in, in the uh, in the Spanish Supercopa and they were... They were awful. They were... They lacked energy. There was no... The, the midfield was so static. There was no no attempt to break the lines. There was no ball carrying from midfield. There was... It, it was a very sort of possession... Possession-based football, but pedestrian-like. It's something which is so unlike what we've seen of Real Madrid in recent times. Uh, elsewhere in La Liga, Sevilla eventually start to propel themselves away from trouble. They've had an awful start to the season. Obviously, the sacking of Julian Lopetegui meant the appointment of Jorge Sampaoli. They had a, a poor start under the ex-Argentina coach. However, they finally starting to kick kickstart their season. A 3-0 home win against Elche. Uh, Elche themselves, bottom of the league with six points. Of course, you'd expect the Andalusian Giants to win that. But, yet again, it's about kick-starting the season. And Sevilla are a giant club, we, we we know that. But there's always the hope that they can kick-start their season now and push on towards mid-table. Uh, as for their rivals, Real Betis, they find themselves locked in a battle for fourth place with Atletico Madrid and Villarreal. Uh, Atleti been poor in what is reported. It's still not been actually confirmed that it's Diego Simeone's final season. But the Jao Felix transfer to Chelsea prob- most likely does highlight that with the fact that there is no option to buy after the loan deal. But they find themselves locked in a battle with Betis and Villarreal. Who, Villarreal, since losing uh, Unai Emery, haven't looked any any worse than what they did. Obviously, they've, they've just lost on out Danjuma to Spurs. Obviously, mentioned his debut goal earlier. But they still look a side capable of winning football matches. Uh, they find themselves playing tonight again. I can't remember who they're playing. You'll have to get back to me on that one. But as I say, um, I think La Liga itself is looking to what, what you'd expect it to be in terms of the top two. But I'd, I'm surprised at how far Atleti have fallen behind. And it is Real Vallecano that Villarreal play tonight. However, I'm, I'm I'm really surprised at Atleti overall. I think that they've got far too much quality in this squad to be fighting with the lot. It's no disrespect to Villarreal and Betis, but they find themselves drifted away from Sociedad Sociedad had themselves having a fantastic season up in, in third place. Obviously, the likes of Sorlot playing fantastic in La Liga this season. But Atleti have been, until recent weeks, they've looked be- a lot better, especially since Antoine Griezmann's fantastic World Cup where he's arguably one of the top three players at the tournament. But they've come back with a bit more zip about them. Uh, however, I just especially in the Copa, in the, the Copa del Rey last week, the controversy surrounding the you know, the Vinicius Junior scandal. And obviously after taking the lead and losing 3-1 to your City rivals, it was it was poor, especially against a Real Madrid side in the poor form that they have been. Uh, I'm surprised at Atleti. And I'm intrigued to know that if this is Simeone's final season, who comes in? Because Atleti, it's, it's a very... There's a massive job that needs to be done at Atleti. Obviously they have talented players, talented players throughout... But there's a whole mentality shift and a whole culture shift that needs to be done in Madrid 
that will be a very, very, very difficult job for any manager. Atleti themselves, they don't have the finances of their city rivals, Real Madrid. They don't have the finances of Barcelona. Obviously, Barcelona have been struggling financially recently in terms of financial fair play, etc. But they don't have the uh, the same pull in terms of being able to bring in these players. Obviously, they've just secured Memphis Depay. However, for, for them to be challenging back at the top, that there needs to be a whole, a massive shift both in on the pitch and off it. And I'm really intrigued as to how that one will go. But elsewhere in Europe, we see Sergio Conceição become the most decorated Porto manager of all time, uh, winning his ninth trophy, uh, beating Sporting 2-0 in the uh, League Cup final. Uh, Sporting have been poor this season, really, considering how good they have been in recent times. Uh, Pedro Porro looking more than likely to be heading to the Premier League, now joining Tottenham. And yeah, they lost to Porto 2-0 comfortably at the weekend. I thought they were very poor watching that game. Porto are one of them sides that are always there or thereabouts in the Champions League in terms of they're always a banana skin for the bigger sides. For no disrespect to them, they're a huge club, but against um against the against Europe's bigger sides. Sorry, and it's good to see Conte Sal, a manager that I rate. I think whilst he doesn't play the most attractive brand of football, you know his side has have been quality over the years and to win a United trophy. All congrats to him, and I'd like to give a shout out for the game of the weekend in the Netherlands where. Isaac Alkmaar drew with Utrecht 5-5, which was when I saw it pop up on Twitter and I thought, because Alkmaar had been flying this season, uh, second place, uh, the striker of both sides netting hat-tricks, but these drop points do allow Feyenoord to stretch the gap to four points ahead at the top. Because uh, I haven't paid too much attention to the Dutch league this season. I knew that, um, uh, as I say, Feyenoord were top of the league. I, I knew that Ajax was struggling. But I didn't. When I seen that Ajax were fifth on Saturday afternoon, I could not believe that for the life of me. However, now we will move on to the section of the show where we talk about all of the latest transfers. So we start with the widely reported Western McKennie to Leeds, a deal that's probably dragged on for a lot longer than it should have. I'm not too sure if it's been announced by the time of recording this, but it most likely will have been announced by the time you do hear this. So, what about Western McKennie then? I think. It's a good signing for for Jesse Marsh. I think whilst he never reached the heights that he would have been imagined to at Juve, I think there's a lot of reports being said about how he never really fit in in Italy due to it not being an English-speaking country, etc. And obviously for an American, you know, moving to Italy, he did seem to struggle in terms of language, uh, not fitting in with the group and all those sorts of things. But, um, God, I send a lot of Jurgen Klopp there. Um, But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him in the Premier League. I think he's got a lot of energy about him. We've seen he's he's got good technical technical ability. He's good on the ball. He's decent defensively. He's a good all round midfield player, which is something Leeds do need. Obviously, we've seen uh, Tyler Adams has been good for Leeds this season. As, but I think you know Mark Rocker. I, I like Mark Rocker, but he's not been too popular with the full Leeds fan base. I know a lot of a lot of accused him of being too weak and too distant from the rest of the play, but. I'm looking forward to seeing McKenney. I think he's a great signing. It's a low-risk deal. Uh, I think it's reported a £1.2 million loan fee, something like that. And I know it was quite low. And then there's not, there's no obligation to buy. There is an option of thirty around hovering around £30 million reportedly in the summer. So it's a low-risk deal. If it doesn't pay off for, for Leeds, it, they can easily pull the plug and let McKenney go back to Turin in the summer. Uh, Malo Gusto uh, signed for Chelsea. In recent days, 
and what can I say but wow on this one? If you haven't watched Gusto, I'll fully recommend that you do. He was absolutely fantastic against West Ham in the uh, in Europe last season. I think he's an, he's got all the potential to be a world class fullback. He's been loaned back to Lyon for the rest of the season. Obviously, as the imminent return of Reese James is looming, but it, I think it's a play. It's a position which Chelsea needed to invest. Reese James himself, I think they they always needed cover for him, especially with Aspilicueta has been getting on for a few years. It, it's, there's no doubt about that, and we've seen them struggle down the right hand side this season. Well, in in both fullback positions, sorry, because Mark Kukurea has not hit the heights that Chelsea imagined, and obviously losing James and Chilwell. It's been arguably two of Chelsea's two weakest points this season alongside their goal-scoring issues. So I think this is this has the potential to be a fantastic signing for a small fee of £30 million as well. You know, if you're looking that Leon could probably have doubled, nearly tripled that in coming years. And I'm surprised they let him go for that. Uh, Chelsea also reported today to be back in for Enzo Fernandez. Whether this one has legs to it I'm not too sure I've seen Fabrizio Romano report it uh, but the rumour is that Chelsea is supposed to be paying in instalments the 120 million fee that uh, Benfica requested uh, Rui Costa is expected to make a decision obviously before the deadline tomorrow but whether this one has any legs only time will tell uh, João Gomes a young Brazilian midfielder that saga for any Wolves fans is finally over uh, I'm, I'm sure people have seen the uh, massive saga on Twitter involving Gomez, which involved a spat between Flamengo, Leon, and Wolves, where Flamengo agreed a deal with Wolves for the Brazilian midfielder to sign in the Black Country. Uh, Leon then upped the bid by one million compared to Wolves, uh, which then led Leon to led Flamengo, sorry, to want to accept the uh, Leon deal despite having already accept, agreed a deal with Wolves. This then led to a saga between the player saying he wanted to go to Wolves. However, Leon was saying, hold on, we paid more money than you. Uh, eventually, after about a week and a half long saga, Gomez has eventually agreed a deal and he's travelling to Wolves as we speak to sign the deal early this week. We previously mentioned Pedro Porro to Spurs has reached a verbal agreement. Another saga seemingly going on for a long while. As well as Milan Skriniar to PSG in this summer. Filippo uh, Inzaghi was uh, quoted last week saying about Simone uh, Inzaghi, sorry, wrong Inzaghi brother there. Simone Inzaghi was quoted saying about how, you know, he trusted the club to make the right decision and to deal with matters behind closed doors, which they have. Both clubs seem to have agreed a deal. Skriniar signs for Paris Saint-Germain in the summer. Fantastic signing, really. He's a world-class centre-half. It, it can't be, that can't be doubted. Kaylor Navas to Nottingham Forest is something that's been bounded about in the last few days. He's supposed, obviously there was a recent injury to Dean Henderson, but he's supposed to to like the project at Forest, and you know, you, you, at the end of the day, you're getting yourself a world class goalkeeper there. Obviously, age isn't necessarily on his side, but a multiple time Champions League winner. You know, Steve Cooper is getting himself a fantastic world class footballer. Anthony Gordon to Newcastle finally being announced after he didn't turn up at Finch Farm for Everton training. Uh, yeah, again, with this one, I'm not... It's safe to say I'm not the biggest Anthony Gordon fan. I think he's a good... He's a good-level Premier League player, He's, but he's not... There's something about him that doesn't sit right with me in terms of his game. I think he's got 
decent ability on the ball, but I think he, he lets himself down in front of goal at times. I think his 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 goals and assists record doesn't doesn't do any sort of justice for a forty million pound move whatsoever. I think he's been poor attitude wise for Everton this season. I think obviously whilst Everton have been poor themselves, I think Gordon hasn't shone in the way that I think Everton fans envisaged, especially after all the links to Chelsea in the summer. But I think his attitude this week. I know I know he's come out and said that you know he he didn't want to treat Everton like that. But I think for, for, for a local lad to, to treat his hometown club and his boyhood club in that way, I think is a massive shame. And I, I don't think Everton fans would have wanted that to end in the way that it has. But I just don't see it with Gordon. I think he lacks pace. I think he he's not the best dribbler. As I say, I think I don't think he's a bad he's a bad player. I think he's a, he'll be a good level Premier League footballer. But for the levels that Newcastle are aiming to reach, and I don't see him being any better than anything what they already have. Obviously, you want squad depth, but the question always revolves around it. Is £40 million too much just for squad depth? Uh, another winger recently signed at Premier League Club, uh, Brazilian winger Tete. Not a player I'm too clued up on. I've seen a few uh, accounts on Twitter uh, talk about him. I think Euro Eurofoot is somebody, I think Euro expert, one of the two. One of them did a video of him, quote me if I'm wrong. One of them did a video recently. Fantastic video talking about him, uh, right, really raving about the player. And he, he does seem an exciting talent, and I'm looking forward to seeing him play. Uh, and here's the big two, really, and I'll start in Italy. Uh, Nicolo Zagnolo for Roma. This has been a saga that has gone on all window long. It's been reported that he's wanted to leave. He's publicly announced that he wanted to leave. Uh, he wanted to, the, obviously, the AC Milan move. He's been linked to Tottenham. However, the the... The biggest bidder was actually Bournemouth, hovering around thirty million, I believe. Uh, the player rejected the proposal from Bournemouth. Obviously, he had his heights, his his uh, his uh, sights set on a move to Milan or to Tottenham, which obviously you can't blame the player. He wants to still be playing top level football. But Zaniolo himself, since his injury, he hasn't really found himself in the best of form. Obviously, he's a, he's a player of immense talent. We know that, but he seems to have backed himself into a corner. With this move, with this uh, deal, where he's obviously rejected Bournemouth, however Tottenham and uh, Milan aren't willing to up their up their bids, so it's reported by Jose Mourinho as well that Zaniola will be staying. So it's interesting to see how the player kicks on from this. Will he will he throw his toys at the pram with Mourinho? Only time will tell, and whether he will get a move in the summer. It's it's more than likely because he has found himself out of favour, especially since the signing of Dybala and the form of, of Abraham in recent weeks as well. So I'm really interested to see it because he is a player with immense talent who hasn't who's fell who's fell really out of favour since his unfortunate long term injury. And now for the big one in recent days has been Moises Caicedo for Brighton. Now he's been a revelation in that Brighton midfield after losing Ius Basuma. A massive player to lose. They seem to have found found a player twice as twice as good. He's he's been fantastic. And I raved about Brighton earlier and and Roberto Deserbi's football. And he's summed up everything good about Brighton this season. He's got pace. He's brilliant defensively. He's got energy. He's got everything you want in a brilliant central midfielder. And obviously, there's been talk about that his wages at Brighton being really low. That has been reported to be false. 
£3,500 a week has been reported to be false in a lot of media sources. So what is actually true in that statement, we don't know. Only time will tell. However, there's been reports today that Brighton have instantly rejected a £70 million bid from Arsenal, who will be desperate for a midfielder as the details come out about Thomas Partey's injury. And obviously, who better to go for than Caicedo? Uh, the player has expressed desires to leave. Uh, he's been reported to have not turned up at training. How true those reports are, yet again, we don't know. But, as I say, I'm intrigued to know what will happen in the next few days. If the player doesn't get his move, will he do what Riyad Mahrez did for Leicester in recent, in a few years ago and knuckle down and get his move in the summer? Or will he completely throw his toys at the pram and refuse to play? We don't know. Only time will tell with that. But I'm intrigued to know with this transfer just the sort of character that Caicedo is. Will he force the move or not? Because I think he's a fantastic player who deserves to play at the top level and one day he will. However, Brighton have a fantastic project going on and it's understandable as to why they won't want to let one of their best players go this late on in the window. I'm intrigued to, as I say, see what happens with that. Uh, but overall, I think there's been a lot of transfer news come out recently. Uh, a lot of it rumours, a lot of it uh, true. But with deadline day looming tomorrow, it's intriguing to see what clubs make desperate last-minute moves, any shock deals. Obviously, the rumour mill has been spinning for a lot of clubs across the country and across Europe in general. And it's intriguing to see what comes of all these. Uh, you'll know where to find out all of the news for that on Eurofocus. But overall, I hope you've enjoyed this first week of Eurofocus Weekly. Obviously, it's the first episode uh, going into this podcast, this will be a weekly series, obviously covering all of the topics from the weekend, all of the things that have gone on. Uh, so yeah, I do hope you enjoyed it. I do hope that you've gained something out of it. And any ideas moving forward, uh, please contact me on my website and please keep on reading the website for any updates, any match reports, any tactical analysis and just all things European football. So I've been your host, Cameron Smith. Thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.